Hello, and welcome to Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Gars Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I'm the director of the museum. As mentioned previously, I have been a bit of a drain on the health service. Uh, indeed, I have to go into workshops again tomorrow for a further procedure. So um, my apologies that the podcasts have been a little sporadic the last couple of weeks. I've not had time to properly research an episode for this week. So I thought rather than do nothing, I would just talk for a while. And on the basis that we are in some fairly miserable times, I thought uh, a spot of humour might do us all a bit of good. So the stories that are coming up are loosely to do with David Horn, who was my predecessor here at the Guards Museum, but also my very first regimental sergeant major in the Honourable Artillery Company, and indeed um, someone who captained the company of pikemen and musketeers of the Honourable Artillery Company, which I had the honour to uh, command some years ago. It was David Horn when he served with the HAC as Regimental Sergeant Major, who actually recommended that my brother and I be sent to the Guards Depot at Purbright to do a drill course. My brother and I were both senior instructors uh, in the training wing at the Honorable Artillery Company, so to go and do a drill course made eminent sense. But it was indeed David who uh, got us local promotion to the rank of Lance Sergeant in order to do get us properly qualified, or properly eligible, I should say, to attend the course. Both my brother and I will be eternally grateful to him for that. Now, in terms of humour, it's rather like being in church. If you're not supposed to laugh, things become exponentially funnier. And we had some incredible instructors on the course, one of which was the administration sergeant. Uh, Longevity prevents me from remembering his actual name. But this guy was a Welsh Guardsman, and every morning he would turn himself out immaculately in full number two dress, white buff belt, best boots, pay stick, and he would stand in front of the full-length mirror inside the administration block in the drill wing and would recite the following. Mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the smartest of them all? You are staff, and that's no tease. Thank you, Mirror. Stand at ease. Quite wonderful. And as I say, this happened every single morning. While we were at the depot, there were two courses running. There was the all-arms drill course. And there was also another course, which was the other ranks instructors in drill, the ORID. Which, if you think about it, comes out as ORID. Now you can imagine the fun that the instructors had with these horrid little men. I well remember the regimental sergeant major of the Guards Depot taking one particular drill parade where both the courses were on the square. The square for the drill wing was bang opposite the guard room. And there was a hedge which marked the edge of the square before you hit the pavement and then the road, and then on the other side of the road, a pavement and the guard room. A civilian road passed straight through the guards depot training camp, so motorists had to be particularly careful because people who were bagged for misdemeanours on the course were marched at double quick time 
straight through the hedge, across the road and into the guardroom. There was one particular day when the regiment sergeant major picked a guy from the Army Air Corps and spotted him for some misdemeanour and told the instructor to lock him up. So you can imagine the regimental sergeant major, who is probably a couple of hundred yards from this, this man, as the regimental sergeant major stood on his podium at the top end in the centre of the square, will refer to the sergeant on the orange course as Sergeant Smith. The regimental sergeant major said, Sergeant Smith, the man in the Army Air Corps, Barry, in your squad is idle. Lock him up. Sergeant Smith said, Sir! And he about turns this guy and steps him off in double quick time and he's heading for the hedge and the regimental sergeant major said, Sergeant Smith! He spins around, puts his feet in, says, Sir! He said, You're locking up the wrong one, but lock him up anyway. So this poor tyke, who had done nothing wrong other than choose to join a regiment which had a pale blue berry and thus made him very, very singular and easy to pick on. My particular squad instructor on the drill course was Sergeant Cavell from the Welsh Guards and he was a very tall, lugubrious Welsh Guardsman with a big moustache who found nothing funny but retold the story that before they actually built grave at the back of the All Arms Drill Wing Square, if they were rehearsing military funerals, they had to go to Brookwood Cemetery nearby and use an actual grave in which to rehearse the interment of the coffin. This required the use of the practice coffin in the G1098 stores. He retells the story that the coffin was drawn from the stores on this particular day and they set off towards Brookwood Cemetery with the coffin in the back of a Land Rover. This had to be done early in the morning before anyone uh, was up and about. So they'd set off quite late, therefore they'd put their foot down, and as they've gone round a corner, the coffin has, with centrifugal force, pitched out of the back of the Land Rover and disappeared into the, uh, the woods at the side. They stopped the Land Rover, dived into the woods, found the coffin, picked it up. He said, imagine the scene. A woman who is up and about early on her way to work, through the lingering early morning mist, sees two individuals coming out of the trees bearing a coffin. How she never crashed the car, I have no idea. Having reached the grand old age of 66, David Horn, my predecessor at the museum, was required to retire by the civil service. I was fortunate in that David and I worked in tandem for a year before he hung his boots up. During that particular year, we had huge fun. and It was, uh, it was great to learn at his elbow the intricacies involved in running a small, poorly funded independent museum. On this particular day, he and I stood at the top of the steps because we were close to the public as there was a rehearsal for a military funeral. Now, some poor soul in the Royal Artillery being killed, they were, as I say, rehearsing the funeral for this particular poor soul. The bearer party, which was eight sergeants and a conducting warrant officer, slow marched onto Chapel Square, past David and I, at which point David said, Sergeant Major, can I offer some advice? Well, the Sergeant Major turned round and said, I've had it up to here with you bloody guardsmen. 
no, shove your advice. I've got this. David said, suit yourself. So we stood and we watched as they slow marched up to the back of the hearse, withdrew the coffin, they rotated 90 degrees to the left and then struggled this coffin up the six very steep stairs into the chapel. The following day was the funeral itself and once again David and I stood there, quietly reverent, as the bearer party slow marched in, withdrew the actual coffin, rotated 90 degrees to the left and then struggled the coffin up the stairs and into the chapel. At the end of the service, as the hearse and coffin drove away, the bearer party quick marched away from the chapel, passing us once again. The warrant officer said to David, I suppose you're going to tell me the guards would have done it better. At which point David turned to him and said, No, what I would say though is the guards actually used the ramp at the side rather than struggling up the stairs. The silence that followed, you could have cut with a knife. Once again on the subject of funerals, David Horne recounted the story that, as he was a late entry officer, in other words, a soldier who had achieved the rank of warrant status, in his case, warrant officer first class, uh, and then been offered a late entry commission. It was an unwritten rule that when you died, other fellow late entry officers would carry your coffin and David Horn recalled being in a minibus having to go to a crematorium in South London to do exactly that one of his colleagues another late entry officer had died and six of them were going down to carry his coffin as they went down there a voice from the back of the minibus said I hope there's enough of you buggers left to carry me when I die a voice from the front said don't worry, Dave, there's only two handles on a dustbin. Once again, priceless military humour. I'm going to change tack slightly now and talk about a gentleman from my regiment, the Honourable Artillery Company. The person I'm talking about is a gentleman called Jack Nye. And Sergeant Nye was an artisifer. He worked with Remy. He used to look after the vehicles at the HAC. One particular year, the HAC were invited to take part in the Royal Tournament. What they wanted in particular was the use of our 25-pound field guns. The director of music of the tattoo, who was a guardsman, Duncan Beat, I think it was, had written a most majestic fanfare to open the show. And he had the mass bands deployed in front of him. The back wall of the Royal Tournament of the Arena was festooned with fanfare trumpeters and he had a 25-pound field gun deployed on either side of the mass bands. And as the music progressed, he would point to one of the uh, field guns and it would go off. And if music went on a bit further, he would point to the other field gun and it went off. As the fanfare reached its crescendo, he would point to both field guns, which would erupt and form the dramatic finish. Now, each field gun had to be manned, and there had to be a number one on each gun who gave the order to fire. But in order to make sure that the order to fire was given at the right moment, a musician from the mass bands was placed in the front rank of the audience 
to give the number one on the gun the signal, which was tapping the balustrade, the signal to fire. As a member of the Coral Drums, we'd been out doing a job in London and we came back to Armory House quite late and we went into the bar for a drink. Now, as the Royal Tournament was some three weeks in length, it required a lot of people to man the guns every night. In fact, two shows a day for three weeks, it required a lot of personnel to man the guns. So Jack Nye volunteered to be one of the, those numbers and he, he ended up as the number one on one of the guns. We saw him sat in the corner of the bar looking very glum. Now what I need to mention is the fact that Jack had a b -b -b bit of a st -st -st stutter. And we said, hello Jack, how are you? And he said, ha ha, hello b -b band. Jack always liked to wind the choral drums up by calling them the band. We said, we're fine, but you look a bit miserable. He said, oh, you ju just been to the b -b bloody Royal Tournament. He said, it, 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 it all w -w went a bit b -b bloody r -r wrong. Why? He said, I've been g -g given a mu mu musician for, for, from the p Parachute Regiment to, to tell me w -w when to say f -f 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 fire. He said, the, the, the re -re rehearsal was f -f -f fine. But this uh, uh, Herbert has d -d 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 decided to g -g get ch changed into c -c civvies for the show. Uh, I'm looking for for this the, this this guy guy to hit hit, hit the b -b balustrade with his rolled rolled up piece of music. I I didn't know which one he was. So, so some c character from the public. Leant forward to put his program down, and the bloody gun went off. Jack and I went on to become the armourer for the company of pikemen and musketeers in the Under Artillery Company, and did a sterling job at keeping the bodyguard on the road, repairing the armour and the weapons, and generally keeping us looking good. We had a, another guardsman in the company by the name of Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown was a stalwart grenadier. And he ended up as the elder sergeant, if, or the regimental sergeant major, if you like, of the bodyguard. One particular training evening on my recruit's course, Gordon Brown had us in a particular position, which is called charge for horse and draw your sword, which involves you carrying all your upper body weight on your left knee, whilst your right foot pushed back, you are holding your pike in front of you, and you've drawn your sword with your right hand. It is the most uncomfortable position in the world, and inch by inch you lose the light as your Morian tin helmet subsides over your eyes as you start sweating. Gordon Brown was gripping us to within an inch of our lives, at which point J -J Jack Nike comes out of his World War workshop and says, Sir, sir, steady on, G -G Gordon. D -d Don't forget it's only a b -b bloody hobby. At which point the entire room collapsed laughing. Again at the HAC, whilst my brother and I were doing our driver training, we happened to share our HDV driving course with one captain, the Honourable Andrew Wigram, Grenadier Guards, who happened to be the training captain at the HAC at the time. He decided he would like to do his HGV licence 
and so we all did the course at the same time. Our instructor was a guy called Sergeant Kane from the MT Wing. We used to go to Northfield Aerodrome in a convoy of vehicles, Land Rovers, RL Bedfords, MK Bedfords, TK Bedfords, and a 10-ton Leyland Hippo of Second World War vintage. The 10-ton Leyland Hippo was there for those who were training to get their HGV Class 2 license. We were allowed to have a bit of a cabbie around the perimeter road of the airfield in the Leyland Hippo just for the experience. The space in the cab of the Leyland Hippo was such that you could actually stand up, step to one side to allow somebody else to take over driving without stopping the vehicle. You could stand up, step to one side, they could walk behind you and then slide into the driving seat. We were driving around the airfield. Andrew Wigram was driving and John Kane was in the passenger seat instructing. We sat behind him along with a large black Labrador. I think black Labradors are issued to all guards officers and Nimrod was the one which belonged to Andrew Wigram. So we're driving around the perimeter road and suddenly the vehicle slowed and stopped Andrew Wiggum applied the handbrake, switched off the engine, and John Kane said, What are you doing? To which he replied, Sark Kane, it's Nimmers's lunchtime. At which point he dismounted the cab, got a bowl out, fed the dog in the middle of the road, and once Nimmers, being a Labrador, had dispatched the food with some alacrity, packed everything up, Nimmers and Andrew Wiggum got back in the cab, and we carried on. It could only happen in the HAC. Coming back to the museum, I worked with two excellent individuals, one by the name of Richard Curtis and one by the name of Stephen Richards. Dick Curtis was the orderly who looked after three garrison sergeant majors. He looked after gentleman Tom Taylor, he looked after Alexander Dumont, Black Alec as he was known, and he looked after Perry Mason. As orderly to the garrison sergeant major, you were responsible for the way they were turned out. And, as you would expect, if you were the garrison sergeant major, your kit was expected to be immaculate. And Dick was a past master at turning his boss out in good order. This particular garrison sergeant major, Perry Mason, was fanatical about the way he looked on parade. If he put on half a pound, or if he lost half a pound, he would throw his home service tunic at Dick Curtis and say, Get that taken in, or get that let out. At which point, Dick would have to take it to the master tailor of the Coldstream Guards, who happened to be Steve Richards, who uh, still works at the museum. But Dick was a guardsman, whereas Steve Richards was warrant officer second class, master tailor. Dick would creep in to Steve's workshop say the garrison wants this taken in half an inch or the garrison wants this let out half an inch at which point Steve would go vertical because this happened literally every other week. I have been told by Steve Richards that having moaned he would then dispatch Dick Curtis and say leave it with me. He would put the tunic on the rack and do absolutely nothing with it. Dick would come back two days later. Steve would say I've done that he would go back, Perry would slip the tunic on and say, oh yeah, that's much better. In all the time he worked there, he never adjusted the tunic one way or the other. 
but as far as Perry Mason was concerned, it was adjusted immaculately every time. A somewhat brash young subaltern in one of the guards' regiments gave an order to an experienced company sergeant major, which the recipient did not consider correct. He thought about it for a moment, then spoke to the officer. Excuse me, sir, he said. If I was to call you a twat, you'd report me, wouldn't you? Yes, Sergeant Major, I jolly well would. But if I just thought you were a twat, sir, you couldn't do much about it, could you? Well, no, I suppose not, said the officer. In that case, sir, I think you're a twat. This story was told by Perry Mason at the farewell dinner for Black Alec when Perry took over as Garrison Sergeant Major. A young ex-Coldstreamer came all the way down from Newcastle to watch the Queen's birthday parade. On his way home, he had a fatal accident and found himself at the Pearly Gates, where he was greeted by St Peter. I've just had this accident, the guardsman told St Peter, and on my way up here I passed a cloud, and there was Black Alec drilling a squad. No, my son, said St Peter, you were mistaken. But I can't be, the guardsman replied. I was at the troop in the colour this morning. I definitely saw Black Alec on parade, and as I passed that cloud, there he was, rifting a squad up and down, and I definitely recognised his features, his stature, and most of all, his word of command. No, my son, St Peter told him. You definitely saw that cloud, and that squad being rifted, but it wasn't Black Alec. But I'm sure it was him, cried the guardsman. I'd recognise him anywhere. That figure you saw wasn't Black Alec, said St Peter. It was God. He just thinks he's Black Alec. So that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed hearing a few stories from my past. Thank you for your attention. I hope to be back in orbit as soon as possible after my sojourn in hospital. And until then, I wish you well. I have been Andrew Wallace. This has been episode 19 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery. Notes from the Guards Museum. So until next time, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up down and get away.